Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the AIConf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Sumit Chintala. He's an AI research engineer at Facebook. Among his many research projects, Sumit was part of the team behind DCGAN, Deep Convolutional Generative Adversarial Networks, a widely cited paper that introduced a set of neural network architectures for unsupervised learning. Our conversation, however, centers around PyTorch, the successor to the popular Torch scientific computing framework. While it's relatively new, PyTorch has been embraced by the deep learning research community. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Samit Chantala, welcome to The Data Show. Well, my pleasure to be here. So before we jump into our discussion, I just wanted to ask you about your job title. Sure. Artificial Intelligence Research Engineer. So I've seen the title AI Engineer, and I've seen the title Research Engineer. So you're somewhat of a hybrid between, or, well, or also there's a title AI Researcher. So Right. Okay. So it's, the title doesn't actually mean much. It's just to make sure people get context on what I work on just by looking at the title. My actual title is research engineer, and I work in the AI division of FAIR. Oh, I see. Okay, great. So we'll come back to Facebook AI research uh, later, but uh, let's start by uh, talking about a a new deep learning framework. By new, I mean uh, 2017, uh, PyTorch, of which you're uh, heavily involved with. So first of all, Describe how PyTorch came about and what convinced you folks to uh, build it. Sure. So to understand how PyTorch came about or where it came from, uh, I'll give you a little bit of historical context. So around, so let's say like pre-2014, there were three main frameworks. Uh, one was Torch, uh, the other was Tiano, and the other one was Cafe. And there were a lot of like other fringe frameworks, but mainly these were the frameworks people used for doing research in uh, computer vision, deep learning, and so on. And all three frameworks had the distinction that they came out of university labs. That is, they were built by grad students, maybe had like one or two support engineers in the case of Tiana, but largely they were frameworks that were built with no formal uh, software engineer like or software architect experience. It's just like, okay, we have a need for this. We're going to build this. And they all came out in around like 2010, 2011. And then people... They all had their niche, right? They, they all had their niche. Like uh, Tiano was really good as a symbolic compiler. Torch was a framework that would... Uh, try to be out of your way if you're a C programmer. So you could write your uh, C programs and then just interface it into loose interpreter language. 
cafe was very, very suited to computer vision models. So you wanted a connet and you wanted to train it on like a large vision data set. Cafe was your framework. They all had their uh, niche. However, one of the biggest problems that was facing these frameworks was that they were not professionally developed or packaged or thought about. You had quality control issues, you had user experience issues, etc. So in late 2015, TensorFlow came out and TensorFlow was one of the first professionally built frameworks from the ground up to be open source. So the bar for uh, what a deep learning framework is supposed to be in terms of quality control or packaging went much, much higher. And that also opened up to the users that, okay, TensorFlow shows us how it's easy to package things and so on. But it, the on the other side of things, all three of these frameworks had aging designs. These frameworks were about like six or seven years old and it was evident that the field was moving their research in a certain direction, that these frameworks, their abstractions weren't keeping up. You know, what's interesting about what you're describing is that it really shows you that there was a need, right? Because uh, as you described it, uh, they were harder to use, and yet people stuck with them for so yes. long. And uh, also, it's also funny because uh, there's that this joke in computer science departments, right? So when the grad student... Uh, grad finishes, the software dies. <laughs> right. But, but exactly. in, in these cases, uh, you can just see the need there, right? Yes. So what happened until then was our users would complain like here and there, but then like they would largely be happy with Lua and they would be okay with like the way we packaged Torch and shipped it. And also like our design itself, like, you know, the, the way you built neural networks, in Python, Keras became an alternative that looked very, very similar to Torch. So people didn't have to deal with like the Lua programming language. So we had a lot of feedback coming in. And at the same time, we had been thinking a lot about what to build as a next generation framework. So wait, uh, there's a missing part of your story because uh, you mentioned that uh, TensorFlow came out, it was professionally built. Yes. And, and yet there was something that uh, you needed. That is correct. So TensorFlow addressed one part of the problem, which is quality control and packaging. And then it offered a Theano-style programming model. So it was a very low-level deep learning framework, on top of which you would see that over the year or year and a half that TensorFlow has been around, there are a multitude of front-ends that are trying to cope up with the fact that TensorFlow is a very low-level framework. So there's TF-Slim, there's Keras, there's like, I think there's like 10 or 15. Like, and like just from Google, there's probably like four or five of those. So on the tort side, the philosophy has always been slightly different to Theano. Like I see TensorFlow as a much better Theano-style uh, framework. And on the tort side, we had a, uh, a philosophy that we want to be imperative, which means that you ran your computation immediately. Debugging should be butter smooth. The user should never have trouble debugging their programs, uh, whether they use, say, like a, like a Python debugger or like a GDB or so on. So we focused on being out of the way for the user. We treat the user as a power user, and we give them tools that are 
very easy to debug and abstract less. And we and it, ha- to... it, it had a lot of fans. Uh, for, so for our listeners who weren't familiar with Torch, I mean, a lot of researchers were using Torch. I mean, even DeepMind was using Torch, right? Yes. DeepMind was using Torch, Facebook, Twitter, several university labs. Like there was like Torch. The year of 2015 was Torch. The year of 2014 was Cafe. The year of 2016 was TensorFlow uh, in terms of like getting the large uh, set of audiences. So yeah, like over time we were thinking about what to build next and how to build it because we wanted to build a modern design that retained the philosophy of Torch. And so we started building it in July 2016. We didn't initially call it PyTorch. We called it Python Torch. We weren't sure what to call it yet. And uh, it started off as uh, an intern project that uh, uh, was uh, Adam Pashka was my intern uh, last summer. And he and I decided that we would build this thing. And what we didn't do is do a design by committee that is like, okay, we're building this next big thing. How do we design it? We instead collected a core group of four people uh, and we just designed the whole framework and built the whole initial set of framework ourselves. And then we started slowly giving access to uh, this uh, framework in its alpha form to a multitude of people in the community, just people who we knew were uh, huge users of Torch or like former users of Torch who left Torch to go, go to Python because Python was more convenient. So we collected a bunch of these people. And by December, we had collected about 70 or 80 alpha testers, completely closed, uh, no public presence. But so we what, had, what, what percentage were from Facebook? There were about 20% or less from Facebook. Okay. We really tried to cover a diverse crowd from like universities, from other companies. Early alpha testers had People from like almost every major company and uh, every major uh, AI uh, research labs, universities, etc. So the the word Torch is in the name. So what's the formal relationship between PyTorch and Torch? Well, PyTorch is a successor of Torch. It's built by the same set of people who used to maintain Torch. And and uh, what is the transition for a Torch user to PyTorch? So a Torch user would see a lot of familiar things uh, in PyTorch, but they would also feel that their philosophy uh, of Torch has been captured well in PyTorch, but also upgraded to modern designs. So there's another framework that you may or may not have been inspired by, and it's a framework called Chainer. Yes, Chainer was a huge inspiration. So... PyTorch was inspired by three primary frameworks. Uh, Chainer was one. And in Torch, uh, we had certain researchers from Twitter who built an auxiliary package called Autograd. And this was actually based on a package called Autograd in the Python community. And both like Chainer, uh, Autograd, and Torch Autograd all used a certain technique called tape-based automatic differentiation. That is, you have a tape recorder that records what operations you have done, and then it replaces it backwards to 
uh, compute your gradients. And, and this is a technique that is not used by any of the other major uh, frameworks except PyTorch and Chainer. All the other frameworks use uh, what we call uh, a static graph. That is, you, the user builds a graph and then the, the, they give that graph to an execution engine that is provided by the framework and the framework executes it. It can analyze it ahead of time and so on. And so these are very two different techniques. The tape-based uh, differentiation gives you easier debuggability and it gives you certain things that are more powerful. It gives you dynamic uh, neural networks and so on. And the, and the static graph-based uh, approach gives you uh, easier deployment to mobile, easier deployment to uh, uh, more exotic architectures, uh, do compiler techniques ahead of time, and so on. So you're roughly just about a year in, and so how would you assess uh, your rollout so far? Have you been happy with the reception? Absolutely. First off, we only publicly released on the 18th of Jan. Uh, so we're roughly like a few months in. Uh, I would say our alpha testers helped a lot in iterating the design, but PyTorch was so rough on the edges during alpha testing that I wouldn't really consider that like, you know, an official release. So we've released on the 18th and we've seen amazing, amazing uh, adoption. So what would be the buckets of adopters? Because, uh, Sumit, one of the things I've noticed is... Uh, there's two, there seems to be two buckets that jump out at me. One is researchers. Yes. And then the other one is uh, people interested in NLP and text. Yes. I, I think that's also like tied to researchers. Like in my opinion, there's uh, three buckets. Uh, one is researchers. And the second is data scientists, including people who do Kaggle competitions and stuff. And the third is product builders, people who actually just take some technique and then like they're building this out into their product. So does that mean that, uh, so when you say data scientists, these are people who aren't deep learning gurus. So that means that you have enough example architectures that ship that they can uh, play with. And... Exactly. What they would generally do is either take a technique and implement it into their data, like into their data pipelines, or they would fine tune uh, their existing models on top, like using uh, a neural network of a certain kind that was just published or so on. So these are, I would say, not really, these people are not really involved in publishing papers to ICML or NIPS, but they're more towards gearing towards company needs in terms of data science or like participating in Kaggle competitions and so on. So what is the relationship between PyTorch and, and A, Keras, and then PyTorch and the larger kind of Python uh, tool set that the uh, data scientists uh, like? Sure. Uh, so to finish up the previous uh, conversation, PyTorch has gotten uh, their, its biggest adoption uh, from researchers, and it's gotten about a moderate response from data scientists. And as we expected, we did not get any adoption from like product builders because PyTorch models are not easy to ship into mobile, for example. So that's the that's the current adoption, and we have people who we did not expect to come on board, like uh, folks from OpenAI 
and uh, several universities. Berkeley uh, was a surprise to us because they were a very strong cafe uh, stronghold, and we expected them to either remain with cafe or go to TensorFlow, but they love PyTorch and uh, they've been uh, using it a lot. Um, several universities in Europe. Uh, so has there been, have you heard of, of uh, people offering PyTorch in a class yet? <laughs> yes, we actually have three courses already being taught with PyTorch, like by March, actually. Uh, one is uh, this fast AI course by Jeremy. Oh, yeah, Howard, by Jeremy. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, and the second is the course at Oxford uh, for machine learning. And uh, then we have the NYU data science course uh, that has all of their practicals in PyTorch as well. Um, apart from this, uh, Stanford offers, recommends its students to do homework either in PyTorch or TensorFlow. And there's several universities in Europe that are using PyTorch as their part of their homework curriculum as well. So yes, there's a lot of uh, students using PyTorch as part of their homeworks and courses being taught uh, using PyTorch. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then I have a, a plug here. I forgot uh, to mention to you earlier that uh, we had a, a deep learning deep learning for NLP book that was uh, using TensorFlow, and then the author switched to PyTorch. Oh, that's fantastic. I did not know that. <laughs> so it was their choice, right? So and then, of course, uh, 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 I supported it right away, right? So That's awesome. Um, so anyway, so going back to, so what's the relationship between Python and Keras and Python and the rest of the Python data science tools that uh, the data scientist community loves? Sure. So Keras is a fantastic front-end uh, for TensorFlow and Theano and CNTK. So what I mean by front end is you can build neural networks quickly and uh, uh, run them on your on a, a, a data set that you give in a particular prepackaged format. And Keras abstracts away which underlying framework is being used to train these things or, or run these neural networks. It uh, makes uh, the user experience very, very simple. Uh, you don't need to worry about okay, which C code is actually running when I when I uh, execute this command, or like it's it's a very powerful tool for data scientists who want to remain in Python and never want to go into C or C plus plus, let's say, to do advanced uh, optimization. Yeah, and it's uh, it's kind of becoming uh, a standard tool. Absolutely, yeah. I think they recently announced that Keras will become a spec. That is, instead of being a software package, they're going to have a spec that defines what Keras is, and then you can have implementations of Keras by different people. Um, so it's it's a very uh, like user-friendly, fantastic front-end. Now, where PyTorch comes is that it's both a front-end and a back-end. Uh, so you can think of PyTorch as something that gives you the ease of use of Keras, or probably more in terms of debugging. And you can, if power users can go all the way down to the C level uh, and like do hand coded optimizations uh, and stuff. So it it takes the whole stack of like I have a front end. That front end then calls a back end to create a neural network, and that back end in turn calls some underlying GPU code or CPU code. And we make that whole stack to be very flat and without many abstractions so that you, you have a superior user experience. 
So do you, what about uh, uh, the tools that Python uh, users use for data science? Usually you, they, they just download Anaconda right. and, and then so, they run everything off of, uh, off of that. Are you guys starting to integrate with this ecosystem? Yeah, so uh, there's a few tools that people use in the Python, Python ecosystem very often. They use Anaconda, they use NumPy, they use scikit-learn and scipy right, 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 and right. all of that. So unlike, uh, unlike say, Cafe or uh, MXNet or TensorFlow, PyTorch actually puts Python first. PyTorch is basically like just integrated into Python. It doesn't have a separate execution engine or anything. So, so it lives up to its name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so one of the biggest benefits of that is that we don't actually have to separately integrate with, say, SciPy or with Anaconda or anything. Like, all of these integrations are just there. Like, we can take in NumPy arrays and convert them to PyTorch tensors with absolutely no performance penalty and vice versa. And we can call SciPy functions inside of PyTorch and vice versa. So it's a very seamless and smooth experience in integrating with the other Python tools. and like. We don't actually have to do any any additional integration or work because we put Python first. So, what about scale? And is there a distributed version in the works? Yes, it's not only in the works; it's actually uh, available on the master brand. So we we're about to release our uh, second major version of PyTorch 0.2, uh, which introduces distributed PyTorch and it introduces higher order gradients. So generally, if when you're training neural networks, you would want to take uh, compute some neural network function, and then you would want to take the first order derivative of that neural network. But we've been seeing more and more research go towards needing to compute the second order or third order differentials. And so in our point two version, one of the major features we're introducing is higher order gradients. And the second feature we are introducing is distributed PyTorch. And the, the distributed PyTorch is powered by the same library that powers Cafe2, uh, the production framework used at Facebook. So it's extremely performant and extremely fast. And we're going to, when we release the version, uh, the, when we release point two, we will have a post detailing how distributed PyTorch works, uh, how uh, its ease of use is and how it does in terms of performance. So we talked about uh, courses. Uh, mm -hmm. We talked about a book. Uh, yes. You mentioned product builders and uh, you, you just mentioned cafe uh, being used in Facebook. So are you starting to see PyTorch being used inside Facebook? Not, not by the researchers, but by the product people. Yes. So uh, internally at Facebook, we have a unified strategy. We we say PyTorch is used for all of research and Cafe2 is used for all of production. And that just makes it easier for us to separate out uh, which team does what and which tools do what. And we are, what we're seeing is PyTorch models are being, like you first create your PyTorch model, do research, make sure it's a promising and good model. And then when you want to ship it into, into production, you just convert it into a Cafe2 model and then uh, ship it into product, into either and, mobile uh, or the cafe. Anything. Cafe team at Facebook is at Facebook too, and yes. uh, Yang Qing showed 
showed me recently some really amazing demos of Cafe running on phones. Exactly. <laughs> Cafe 2's biggest strengths is that it's probably the fastest mobile framework and it does really well on production workloads where you're running things million times a day, the same thing. Uh, they do really well at this. Uh, so who would you say is the is the core of PyTorch at this point? Is it still mostly Facebook? Because uh, I'm starting to hear people at other companies also m perhaps contributing, maybe absolutely. Maybe I companies like companies like Salesforce, maybe right. So yes. So PyTorch itself, from the beginning, uh, we built it uh, as a distributed uh, development model. So. Uh, PyTorch, uh, take, so Torch was similar. Torch was actually developed by three companies at the same time. Uh, you would see patches being merged into Torch from Facebook, DeepMind, and Twitter, all at the same time, probably on the same day even. So this was a distributed uh, community-based development model. Apart from these uh, big companies, there were several uh, smaller companies, universities contributing to Torch. With PyTorch, we take the exact same model. PyTorch has the same licensing that Torch has. Torch itself was controlled by a company called SPI Inc. It's a company that uh, holds uh, the corporate. It's a corporation that uh, runs uh, OpenOffice, uh, sorry, LibreOffice, uh, Haskell. Uh, and many other very large uh, open source projects like FFmpeg. So Torch actually is uh, run by SPI Inc. in terms of like, uh, uh, you know, where it's incorporated and stuff. And PyTorch is exactly the same. Uh, we have a decentralized company that, you know, can take contributions to PyTorch via SPI Inc. And the community model itself is that People from Salesforce, uh, James Bradbury from Salesforce, and uh, people from Facebook and Twitter, and uh, folks from uh, several universities, they all contribute, engage, participate, and commit patches to PyTorch. It's, are, uh, it's, are, are you folks getting contributions from overseas like China? Um, we don't actually track by country, we track it by, you say, universities or companies. Uh, we have seen quite a few uh, pull requests from people uh, from both China and Korea uh, in terms of which university they go to. But the major, major contributors uh, are largely from Europe and uh, America. So what uh, uh, rattle off uh, uh, a few things on your roadmap for the rest of 2017 and early 2018? Sure. Uh, the rest of 2017, what we are doing is we're building a compiler for PyTorch. So I, I'm sure you heard of the new NVIDIA GPUs, the Volta GPUs. The Volta, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we have several new AI hardware coming up, like NVIDIA GPUs are coming up, and AMD is coming up with their own line of GPUs called Vega. And then uh, in Intel has Lakecrest Nirvana. Exactly. Intel has Lakecrest Nirvana coming up, and there's several startups coming up with uh, their own hardware. And this hardware is running much faster than we can feed computation into it. It's going very, very fast. What that means is that 
we as framework writers, we have to build certain compiler components into your frameworks to even keep up with these hardware and run at full potential. And uh, in this line, TensorFlow has their XLA project, right, right. where you can, it's, it's a compiler that can take a TensorFlow graph and uh, compile it and target different backends. Similarly, with PyTorch uh, and uh, Cafe2, we are building a common compiler um, and we're also collaborating with the folks at Amazon, uh, the, the, the MXNet folks, and we're building this common compiler that can take either PyTorch uh, dynamic graphs or Cafe2 models, and it can run these things much faster uh, on uh, hardware like uh, Volta or like in general GPUs, for example. And that's an ambitious project that's going at full speed. And we are uh, hoping that uh, by some part of 2017, like before the end of 2017, you will see that integrated in some form into PyTorch. And uh, users will see their computation being accelerated, but again, not lose any flexibility or debuggability. Yeah, because that's definitely one of the trends I'm seeing, which is we're entering a world of heterogeneous processors, maybe even uh, some very specialized and, and domain-specific processors. Absolutely. Um, so you built PyTorch with a bunch of people, but obviously you also have a job as a research engineer. Uh -huh. um, so what? how has PyTorch uh, supercharged your uh, work as a research engineer? Um, so like just with the modern design of PyTorch, uh, I've been personally in my own research, but I've also been hearing this a lot from my colleagues, is that we've been exploring new things um, that are not constrained by, by what we were able to do. So with PyTorch, we have these things called dynamic neural networks that are enabled by PyTorch. Yeah, the so-called uh, dynamic computation graphs. Exactly. So this is something that has constrained us in the past. Uh, that is like we would engage in only certain kinds of research because doing, say, dynamic uh, models would take us much, much longer to build in, say, Torch. So we've been seeing research being unshackled from those bounds. And uh, we've seen a lot of dynamic neural networks. We've seen, because it, PyTorch integrates well with, uh, with uh, uh, SciPy, we've been seeing a lot of like weird, like uh, linear programming, quadratic programming based optimizers in deep learning. Uh, we've been like seeing a lot of directions being supercharged uh, now that PyTorch uh, is here. And uh, you yourself have, have been part of and have co-written a bunch of really uh, seminal papers in uh, uh, GANs, right? General, generalized that is, uh, yes. uh, generative adversarial networks. So that is uh, does PyTorch help in that area? Um, so with generative adversarial networks, I would say like PyTorch helps a lot in terms of how fast you can prototype, but um, with those particular kinds of models, you can use any framework. You can use PyTorch, you can use TensorFlow, you can use Tiano, and uh, you should be good with 
running them. Uh, PyTorch specifically does not boost what you can do with GANs, for example. Right, 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 right. So that's interesting because uh, I think I saw you tweet, I don't know when, something along the lines of, hey, I just I haven't looked at archive for the last 30 days and I just checked, I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> that is absolutely true. So, and so now, now you just built a tool which, which will generate even more papers. <laughs> yes, um, I'm both happy and sad about this. <laughs> so one of the things that we've been seeing in, in research, especially in generative adversarial networks research, is there are papers coming left and right, day in, day out. You have a paper with a flashy title that's coming in every single day. And some days you have five papers appear on the same day uh, in, in the generative adversarial networks domain. So I personally have completely stopped reading papers on GANs um, because there's just way too many and I can't keep up. And the way I keep up these days is like if some of my colleagues mention a particular paper, uh, I just hold them right there and I say, explain this paper to me in five minutes. And then that's <laughs> that's basically how I'm keeping up. So this is not a good state of affairs if uh, you as a researcher have to resort to this hack. <laughs> so yeah, as a researcher, you have to do several things, right? You have to do literature review, make sure you know the whole field pretty well. But you also have to think about problems and how to tackle them, do some creative research. And especially if you tackle longer-term uh, research, you don't see that the field moving that fast. Like if you're targeting research that is like, say, two or five years away, then you, you keep up uh, with current research, you know, occasionally, but you don't need to know like what paper came out yesterday. Right. Uh, so I've been focusing a little bit on slightly longer term research, uh, doing multimodal uh, stuff. So are you allowed to kind of uh, uh, give us a teaser of uh, the, prob the kinds of problems you're working on at a high level? <laughs> I can, I'd, at a very high level, I could. Uh, I've, I've started thinking a lot about not focusing on one single domain, like say computer vision or uh, NLP or speech. Uh, but I, I've, I've started thinking a lot about how to build something that's at the intersection of all of these and probably has abstract logic as well uh, in between. And I've been exploring a lot. Uh, there's a lot of uh, existing literature that sort of touch upon this, but this is a very, very new field of, say, grounding one one domain in another domain. And I don't have anything concrete to share, but there's there's a lot of exciting longer term things I'm exploring. So, what would be what would be an example application? Let's say you're able to make some uh, breakthroughs in this area you're describing. I would say you would get to unifying your research in different... So right now, you have the state of the art in image classification or object detection. You have superhuman performance there, right? Right, right. And you have like superhuman performance in some speech tasks and you have like amazing performance in some text tasks. But each of these systems are separate expert systems. They 
you can't take a speech model and say, okay, I have this amazing expert speech model. How do I integrate this with, uh, uh, all, with, with my expert image model and then try to have a, a, uh, a model that takes in questions and right. uh, answers things and like, all, like this end-to-end general system. It's just not there. I guess, I guess uh, going back to what uh, you said earlier, uh, the whole notion of multimodal, right? So if your inputs are multimodal, Yes. Uh, then uh, the system will be smart enough to use bits and pieces of the different inputs. Right? That is correct. Cool. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we look forward to the progress of uh, not only PyTorch, but also of AI and uh, the types of things you're working on. Thanks for hosting me, Ben. You can follow Sumit Chintala on Twitter, at Sumit Chintala. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can rate us and subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.